Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Life expectancy is often used as a way of judging the success of a society. It's not just that Westerners think they're better when it comes to the important metric of life expectancy. They are better than many other places. But behind those uh, broad brush figures, there are lots of distinctions between the reasons for different expectations in life expectancy and also between different members of society and are also different trends as to where this is all headed. And all these have been studied by our guest today, Sir Angus Deaton, the Nobel Prize winning economist, Dwight D. Eisenhower, Professor of Economics and International Affairs Emeritus at Princeton University. So, Professor, thanks so much for talking to us. And can you just tell us what, what do you think differences in life expectancy tell you about different societies? Well, um, there is almost this argument that economists tend to spend too much time worrying about things that are monetary. <laughs> so we're very focused on income, we're very focused on wealth. And but, you know, for, for people's lives, um, if you're not alive to enjoy those things, those things are not worth very much. So you can make an argument that says that health, you know, and the number of years you can live in particular, is a more important consideration um, for people's lives than just money. We really do have to take a bunch of these things together. And, you know, life expectancy is one way of capturing the health side of things. Until recently, the Western dominance in this area, the Western success in this area has been clear, unambiguous. Is that right? Yes, though, there, if, if you use life expectancy as your measure of health, there's been quite a lot of very rapid catch up. And there are lots of examples where you can find, you know, failures of the ranking that, that um, GDP per capita, for instance, is certainly not perfectly correlated with life expectancy. Um, one example that people often talk about is Costa Rica has a higher life expectancy than the United States, for example. So you, you can certainly find reversals like that um, all the way along. 
just to follow up on that, because it sort of raises a question when you say that about Costa Rica, is, is the main reason for that their health system or is it something else? I don't think, yeah, now we get into really difficult therapy, which is um, trying to ask the why question. And I think in the Costa Rican case, they do have a very good preventive healthcare system that looks after people very early in life and follows them over time. But for instance, I think the, um, you know, the healthcare system in the United States, which is the most expensive in the world, is certainly not contributing long life to Americans. In fact, you know, Anne Case and I have argued exactly the opposite. So it, it's not easy. And that, that is something that your listeners maybe should think about and we should talk about a bit, which is that the, the, the tendency to equate health with healthcare system or healthcare, whereas there's lots of things that determine health and determine life expectancy that don't have much to do with the healthcare system. Right, it's what you present to the healthcare system in a way, what you bring, to, you know, how ill you get before you engage with the healthcare system, maybe. Well, we, we will talk about that. Just before we do, when I asked you whether you'd be willing to do this, and thank you very much for, for talking to us, you said it's a much misunderstood topic. Which bits are misunderstood? One of the things that's misunderstood is that people think life expectancy is the number of years you can expect to live, <laughs> which seems like it ought to be. But in general, it really is not. The underlying thing, which underlies all of these measures are of how long you might live, are mortality rates. And you know, there's a mortality rate, which is your probability of dying at age five or at age 50 or at age 90. And those are all different from one another. And over time, they all move differently. And life expectancy is just one way of taking a sort of average of those numbers. Now, more precisely, if a newborn baby was born today and the mortality rates at each age stayed exactly the same for the rest of the infinite history of time out there, then how long would that baby live for? But of course, these mortality rates are changing all the time. And mortality rates, you know, for most of our lives have been falling pretty reliably. Um, obviously, with COVID, mortality rates went up. Um, and in the US, um, for the past 10 years, um, there are large groups of people for whom mortality rates are also going up. So, you know, in order to find out how that baby is actually going to live, you'd have to make all sorts of forecasts about what mortality rates are going to be 50 years from now. And the statisticians, you know, prefer to avoid that if they can, though they do that too. So the standard life expectancy measures are just based on how long would a baby born today live for if at all stages of that baby's life, they face the mortality rates that we have today. Right, so, so you're saying life expectancy is not how long you can expect to live because the mortality rate changes and is it over time, and it also yes. changes according to how old you are. Is that right? That's right. Well, that, that's true, but that's taken into account okay. by the life expectancy calculation because when you're calculating how long the baby's gonna live, um, you know, a five-year-old has very little chance of dying, a 90-year-old has a very high chance of dying, and that's taken into account. But what's not taken into account is changing um, 
changing mortality rates over time. So to take a current example, um, COVID has reduced life expectancy in the US by probably two years or a year and a half in 2020 compared with 2019. Now it's probably gonna stay down there in 2021 because COVID hasn't gone away. And we're probably gonna lose about as many people in America at least as in 2021 as we've lost in 2020. But if it goes away, say in 2022, life expectancy will shoot back up again because it's really a measure of the mortality rates in that year. Let's get into the why then, because you did this research in which you and, and your wife, I should say, because you co-author on these books, you wrote about the rising mortality rate among middle-aged white non-Hispanic Americans in the previous decade. Is that right? That's right. No, it's good. Um, I think of Anne in this context as my co-author rather than my wife. Yeah. No, no, sure. I wasn't saying anything else. I didn't mean to. Anyway. Uh, but but when, can I just ask about that description of the group you're talking about? Because why do you say white non-Hispanic? What, what, what's the significance of that phrase? Part, part of this is just the way the U.S. does its demography. It classifies people by race and ethnicity. And race and ethnicity are two separate categories. So there's a question, are you Hispanic or not? And there's another question is, are you black, are you white, are you American, Indian, Alaska Native, all that sort of stuff. And so this is the intersection of two categories. So I'm just giving you the mechanical technical photography. There, there's something about the health of Hispanics in the US, um, which is often referred to or sometimes referred to as the Hispanic paradox which is Hispanics have longer life expectancy. They're healthier than white people. And many people find that startling because they think of in social terms, the hierarchy is sort of whites, Hispanics, African-Americans, and they expect their life expectancy to be in that order. And in the past, Hispanics have done relatively well. They're also an odd group because, you know, Hispanics from Cuba are very different from Hispanics from Mexico or Hispanics from Guatemala, many of them are recent immigrants. So the, the Hispanic, putting Hispanics in there tends to confuse things a little bit. So we looked at whites, particularly non-Hispanic whites. And in fact, since we discovered that, the same thing is happening to non-Hispanic blacks. Um, so there's a rise in mortality rates in middle-aged women too. Right, so can you explain to us why this group of uh, middle-aged white non-Hispanic Americans are experiencing rising mortality rates. What's the reason? Well, again, you know, as I responded to one of your first questions, this is what we all do research on, and it's not something that sticks out at you. I mean, it's true. Obviously, if a lot of people die from COVID, we know what, why that happened. It was COVID, right? Um, and, but, you know, some of the great puzzles, like no one really knows why life expectancy has increased so much over the last century and a half, for instance. So there's lots of conflicting theory. So let's give you the story about the white non-Hispanics and middle-aged who are done. Um, this, um, we discovered this um, way back in about 2013. Um, and it was just in the data that we saw these mortality rates going up for this fairly major group. 
when we looked in detail, it was only people who did not have a four-year college degree. So, or people here who don't have a BA, it takes four years in the US to get a BA. So it's less educated, originally whites, but now whites and less educated blacks too, um, whose mortality rates are going in the wrong direction. So why? Well, in our book, um, Dust of Despair, The Future of Capitalism, um, we trace this back to changes in the labor market, among other things, um, starting in around 1970. 1970 is a sort of hinge date when the world started coming apart for less skilled Americans and for many less skilled Brits too. Um, and, you know, the, the participation in labor force has fallen. Um, wages have fallen for more than 50 years. Um, there are no unions anymore, and unions, you know, provided a social, a political function, as well as helping people get higher wages. The courts have turned much more pro-business than they once were. Um, the share of profits in GDP, which was once thought to be an eternal constant, has been rising um, over this um, period. Um, marriages have been disintegrating especially for people without a BA, very little of it, people with a BA. Levels of pain have been rising consistently over time. Again, only for people without a BA, or, you know, obviously there are other people, but the averages are like that. Um, disability has been rising. So, you know, people don't go to church anymore. Um, again, that's an exaggeration, but um, church attendance is declining even among evangelical groups where it was long increasing. So you've got a lot of um, people who are really detached from supportive institutional structures um, in the United States. And, you know, we've become very Durkheimian in, in doing this work. And we think of these things, which are primarily driven by what we call deaths of despair, which are suicides, overdoses, from largely opioids, but not just opioids, um, and alcoholic liver disease. You know, these are things that the medical system's not really doing. Um, and these are things that people do to themselves. And so it, it's the picture we've tried to draw is one in which the social structure, the meaning of life is deteriorated from, for less educated Americans um, to the point where they're taking their own lives. When you talk about uh, drug use, alcohol use, and suicide, uh, I think intuitively most people would think they're quite minor categories, but you're saying they're not. They're, they're big enough to affect the, the figures for the whole group. That's right. I mean, of those deaths of spares, they're currently running at about 180,000 uh, a year. Um, the other thing that's happened that is important, and it's happening in Britain too, is that the big driver of mortality decline in the last quarter of the 20th century um, was a decline in heart disease and cardiovascular disease. And that seems to have stopped, um, stopped declining. And that's a much, much bigger number. Um, that's the second largest killer after cancer. Um, and among less educated Americans, it seems to be actually those deaths are rising. In Britain, they seem to have just flattened out. 
there is one place, I, I don't know where you're sitting, but um, there's one place where these things are even worse than they are in America, and that's Scotland. In, in Scotland, yes, where there are some communities with very, very bad statistics, aren't there? And yes. sometimes living very close to communities with very good statistics. So it's, it's, a, it's a very striking case. That's right. And in fact, um, America is not doing so badly. It's almost caught up in the worst mistakes with Scotland. Right. So, so, so when you say lower church attendance, uh, the lack of support from unions, uh, the breakdown of community, that these are relevant factors, can you prove that or can you just establish the correlation? Um, you don't, I, I think you don't want me to give you a lecture on causal inference and economics for society and so on. But I really believe, like historians, in telling stories and, you know, bringing all these pieces of evidence together and then telling a concrete story. We don't think there's any empirical evidence that um, contradicts this, but of course, over time, um, maybe there will be. But you have to ask yourself why, you know, Scotland apart, um, these deaths of despair are not really showing up elsewhere. And there are two things that we focus on. Um, people like to talk about automation and globalization, um, which we tend not to give a huge place to. I think these things are important. I mean, the decline in employment for less skilled workers everywhere, in Britain included, has a lot to do with, uh, you know, the, the um, mechanization. So, for instance, American manufacturing output continues to increase but the number of people used to produce it has fallen very rapidly. That's happening everywhere. And so if that was what was doing it, you'd expect to see dust of despair, you know, in European countries too. And there's some of it in Britain, um, but in Germany, France, so on, just don't see it at all. So one of the big things, there are two things that we think are important. One is you have a much more elaborate social safety net than we do here. We don't really have a social safety net at all for adults. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, when bad things happen in the labor market, there's some protection in Europe. Here, there really isn't. The second thing is this enormous cost of our healthcare system. Um, so it's incredibly costly and it's funded largely by having employers pay, um, buy insurance for their employees. And that insurance, which is running at about $20,000 per person per year for a family policy, about 11,000 for a personal policy, that either has to come out of wages or if it comes out of saying that the firm says, to hell with this, you know, we're gonna contract this out and we're gonna install some machines to do this. So, you know, we don't really need parking attendance anymore. We can have an automated system. You know, we don't really need um, to have an in-house catering service. We just buy that in. And that sheds what were good jobs. I mean, there were sort of low status jobs within large corporations that really don't exist anymore. I mean, when I was a kid in Scotland, you know, if someone got a job with a big firm, we thought they were sort of made for life. Um, it gave meaning to their life. It gave hope of promotion. It gave a career path ahead. And most of that's gone. 
um, because those jobs just don't exist anymore. But it's so interesting that you're talking about community, uh, hope, uh, supports networks. How much of this is to do with just yeah inequality, not earning much compared to other people? Well, because these people are not necessarily the poorest of the poor, and um, you know, and in particular, when we first looked at it before 2013, this was only opening happening to white non-Hispanics. And white non-Hispanics as a group are much better off than African-Americans as a group, for example. So it didn't seem to be just totally related to, um, um, to money. You could, of course, a race is always an issue in the United States, and there's a lot of um, racial animus, um, some of which seems to be felt very strongly among less educated whites. And obviously, it's stirred up by Donald Trump and people like that. Um, and I think that's got to be an issue too. Has has striving got anything to do with this? That people who are striving to create more wealth in the previous generation to establish themselves in some way, you know, maybe more recent immigrant communities who have that uh, sense of striving, does that help them in this life expectancy? Or don't we know? Uh, well, I. I'm not quite sure what striving means because you can think of it both as a reaction to a bad thing that's happened. You're sort of striving to get out of that. Um, I mean, thriving is perhaps a better term here. But I thought you were going to go somewhere else. And I think it's true that um, for, um, you know, for my generation, your generation, we all thought we were going to be better off than our parents. And that turned out to be a very reasonable expectation. After 1970 or so, when growth fell, you know, there was much less growth in the economy. And when the economy turned to only serving this top third, you know, with a college degree, um, then that wasn't a reasonable expectation for young people anymore. And so this way of thinking towards the future um, you know, again, it's connected up with what I said about, you know, joining a large firm and getting, getting a job. You've had prospects. And the sort of prospects have gone away because the jobs with prospects have gone away. Um, immigrants are a little bit different. Um, I'm an immigrant myself, so I <laughs> soft spot for immigrants. But immigrants are not a random sample of people in the place where they come from, for instance. They tend to often be very successful because they're really go-ahead sort of people who will take extreme steps, including migration, um, to better themselves. So, you know, they're very exceptional people. And when you look outside of Europe and the United States, which you've talked about, what are the significant trends elsewhere in the world in this area of life expectancy? Where, where are the big issues that you're seeing come up? Well, there's COVID, of course. Um, and so we're beginning to get the numbers in on what COVID has done to life expectancy and how long it's going to last. Um, you know, COVID is, of course, the virus itself is, is not directly under control, but as those death rates um, evolve over time, you see them, there's obviously going to be a lot of discussion as to how governments handled them, you know. And, and what is still surprising to me is that 
the highest death rates, the biggest falls in life expectancy are happening in some of the richest countries um, with many poorer countries, perhaps, well, not so affected yet. Maybe it will change over time. So that, that's one trend that we're all watching um, all the time. I mean, it makes sense that this thing was spread along trade routes like pandemics have historically. And the trade routes go to places like New York and Milan, Wuhan, and so on. And the trade routes don't go through Chad or the Central African Republic, for instance. So that doesn't mean that they're permanently exempt from it, um, quite the reverse. There are, of course, on top of that, there are these long-standing trends of, um, you know, poor countries catching up. And a lot of that is another thing we haven't talked about, about life expectancy, which is if you save a life, the effect on life expectancy depends on how many years that life would have had to live had it not died. So saving babies um, has much bigger effect on life expectancy than saving people like us, right? So one of the reasons that poor countries been catching up is because of the elimination of infant and child mortality, not elimination, but re rapid reduction of it. I'm not sure it's still true with COVID, but um, one fact that is very cheery is that there is no country in the world, however unsuccessful in other respects, um, whose infant and child mortality rates are higher now than they were after the Second World War, for instance. In fact, when I was born in Edinburgh, the infant mortality rate was higher than than it is in India today, for example. So um, big catch up, and that has huge effects on life expectancy. Whereas, you know, if they cure Alzheimer's disease, that would be great. We're all worried about it, uh, but it wouldn't have much effect on life expectancy. So uh, essentially, if if there is technological advance in medicine and cures that we didn't have before, they tend to have less and less effect on life expectancy because you're moving up, you're saving the youngest people first and then moving on. And if we look at it geographically, if you look at China, Africa, China and the rest of East Asia, maybe uh, Africa, South Asia, Middle East, what are the trends geographically on a on the sort of global scale? Um, well, China's done very well, um, you know, and a very, very rapid increase. But you know, the, the danger in China is that you get another great leap forward or something, right? Of course, really a great leap backwards, but there's, there's a chart I, I like to show my students is, is that, um, you know, if you look at life expectancy in China in 1960 compared with 1970, between 60 and 70, it went up by about 30 years. So 10 years of time, 30 years of life expectancy. And that's because the Great Leap Forward stopped happening. So, you know, those political disasters can kill, you know, enormous numbers of people and have huge setbacks on life expectancy. HIV AIDS had huge effects in Africa around between 1990, after 1990. <clears throat> and I haven't looked at the, the very latest um, data. I've been sort of waiting to see what happens when we get the data on COVID. I think the worst in the world for COVID mortality has been Peru. Uh, at least one study showed that. So. Well, that's interesting what you said about Africa with HIV AIDS. Did that actually, because the figures in many African countries are appalling, aren't they, in terms of life expectancy? I mean, they are yeah, so the, the, They're also incredibly badly measured. I mean, that's another issue. Yeah.
um, there are quite a bunch of, I don't know how many, maybe about a dozen African countries that have not had a census ever. Right. So without a census, it's very hard to calculate. And then, and then you know, complete vital statistical, uh, vital registration systems are what happens if you or I die, you know, some municipal official gets to know that and it goes to the central government and then it goes into the death certificate. There's none of that in most of Africa. And even South Africa, it's by far from complete. So a lot of the data in Africa are made up, but that doesn't mean what you say is not true. I mean, they're clearly very, very bad. And that's still because, you know, infant and child mortality in much of Africa is still very high. Right, that would be the, so that's what I was trying to get at is is to what extent it was, you know, to, to some extent a one off thing, HIV AIDS, which will last some decades, but nonetheless a one off event, if you like, uh, versus those trends, infant mortality and other factors that you've been studying. So, yes, infant mortality in, in Africa probably would be the key reason that that number is so bad. That's right. I mean, the best way to increase life expectancy anywhere is to save children's lives. And there's a limit on that in Britain or Iceland or Singapore, where tiny numbers of children died. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this study of the, the British Civil Service, which is absolutely fascinating on, on life expectancy. And it was yes. Professor Marmot, wasn't it, who, who showed that uh, the seniority of a member of the civil servants service would seem to have an impact on their life expectancy, which is you know, a surprising result. Can you just talk us through that and tell us what you think about that research? Well, I haven't followed the very latest um, work, but the last paper I saw, which actually was uh, um, members of um, Sir Michael's team, but not him himself, which was published in either the Journal of the Amer American Medical Association or New England Journal, I forget which, um, had showed that actually once you controlled for behaviors, there wasn't very much left in terms of the importance of um, you know rank in in the civil service you also have to remember that there are very very small numbers of poorly educated people <laughs> in that sample i mean they they always like to talk about from all the way from janitors to um, mandarins but there are hardly any janitors <laughs> um, in that sample most of them are very highly educated so it's a very special um, sample and I mean, I don't know what it is. And, um, you know, education, I think, is probably part of it. Um, the civil servants, the higher ranking civil servants are taller than the lower ranking civil servant, which suggests they had different health before they became civil servant. Um, but, you know, it's a remarkable study and it's certainly focused um, the attention of uh, many people around the world on what um, in the sociological literature is, is referred to as socioeconomic status, which is, you know, in Whitehall is pretty clear because you've got a government grade or something. Though I believe in those studies, they, they measure status by income in, in the end. And, you know, and partly education, partly what happens in childhood. And I don't think we've got all that sorted out yet, but there are, I think, lots of ways of telling the Whitehall story. So, so did I understand you right at the beginning of that answer to say that the latest papers they'd produced suggested rank was less important than they originally thought? 
I didn't say it was the latest they produced. It was the latest I've read. Right. Yes. Um, okay. And and there's a paper by Stichetti and various other people um, in which when they control, um, in, in the original work, they controlled for behaviors at baseline, um, but they were not monitoring the people over time to find out how those behaviors change. And this paper had done that. And then it turned out that most of the status effects were certainly attenuated. Okay, that's so interesting, because because what was striking about his original claim was that somehow, not really success, but being in control of your life uh, uh, w was beneficial to your life expectancy, but that's less clear a finding than it was, perhaps. Yeah, less clear, I think, but I, I wouldn't dispute the fact that being in control of your life is a really good thing. <laughs> you know, whether it, it increases your life expectancy. But I, I should make it clear that these are, this, you know, this Whitehall study has been very, very important and has sort of changed the whole direction of research in the area. It's been a sort of keystone of the work on the social determinants of health. You mentioned that uh, your deaths of despair have, have expanded out from uh, white non-Hispanics to black non-Hispanics. Can, can yes. you just give us your... Uh, assessment of what the future trends are likely to be in the in this area of life expectancy. Oh, really, really hard to tell because um, I mean each of them. So suicide, in some sense, is a central part of the story because the it, the archetypal death of despair. Well, if that's not a death of despair, what is? Um, and you know, suicide in America is rising, whereas nearly everywhere else in the world, it's falling. And, you know, we've left the sort of Western European countries behind and are now getting to the levels that are usually associated with countries in Eastern Europe, which used to be the sort of world capitals of suicide. I mean, you know, one might hope that conditions will improve and that, you know, but anyway, I don't know. Um, when it comes to drugs, that's a much more malleable thing. Not, you can think, I mean, that was started by the pharma companies who were pumping out enormous quantities of opioids into, you know, huge amounts. And then there, most of them are now in court, um, you know, fighting to keep the billions that they made in little cotton games. But, you know, when the medical profession discovered what they were complicit in, they sort of backed away. But there were now so many people addicted that they were very easy prey for illegal drug dealers. And so this epidemic of um, OxyContin sort of turned into an epidemic of illegal heroin and more recently into fentanyl. Those are not controllable at all, or they are, but only you know, in drug wars and all the rest of it, which have typically not been very successful in the past. I think those tend to get extinguished when communities realize what's happening to them and stop, you know, put community controls on these things, but it could take a really, really long time. You know, there was a lot of talk at the beginning of COVID that people would kill themselves during COVID if there were lockdowns. Um, that didn't happen. In fact, suicide rates went down a little bit. And not just in the US, but around the world. Um, the drug deaths went up very rapidly during COVID, but they were going up before COVID. And so we don't really know how much of it's the pandemic and how much of it's something else. I don't have any information about all that so far, 
but there's certainly a lot of concern about people buying huge quantities of alcohol and drinking quarantinis or whatever we call um, during the pandemic. But you know, these, this thing started in the mid nineties, these deaths of despair, they rose very rapidly. Um, and let's hope, but we don't know what's gonna happen. And you know, our worry is that this will spread to other countries too. But it's a fascinating area and uh, you've explained it very, very clearly. So professor, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, I've enjoyed it.